Welcome to the final episode of Series 1 of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends how far down the rabbit hole you prepare to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello, rabbit holies. Hello. So this is the final episode. I know, it's rather moving. Sad, isn't it? It'd be nice if for once perhaps there was a slight change in the voting (laughs) and that somebody who's perhaps not had as strong a showing in the the last episode. Yeah. 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 It's, all, it's all down to it's today, good. It isn't it? It doesn't matter, isn't it, Richard? It doesn't yeah. matter. It's so just it's the taking part. Exactly. A bit of a sort of competition final, but it's not much of a I've never met three more competitive people than us. So. <laughs> but do you think you are competitive? I gather I am from everyone I know. Well, me too, because I don't think I am. Exactly. But if I were to say that, I can hear the gales of mocking mm, laughter. I know. Can no, we say we have yeah, standards? Yeah. I think we have standards. We have standards. Yeah. But you're not competitive, Kat. I definitely am, I think. Yeah. But I like to think I'm not, but I mm. think definitely. Yeah. <laughs> we should have done one on competitiveness, shouldn't we? Are we sort of being competitive about not being competitive here now? I'm very happy to be called competitive. Yeah. Um, okay. As long as I win. Yeah. <laughs> Fair I don't enough. Mind. I'll give you that. I'll give you that this as long time. As I win. This yeah. time. Right. So, as with every episode, at the end of last week's, we were given a subject told to disappear down our rabbit holes to discover as much interesting information as we could. So, Charles, we're going to be starting with you today, and you probably have lots of these lying around at home. <laughs> what can you tell us about the history of the umbrella? Well, it's interesting with the umbrella because, as we know it, in the sort of wetter climes, it hasn't been around for that long. If you look at ancient examples of what we would see as the structure of an umbrella, you would go to Persepolis, the monuments there, or ancient Rome, ancient Greece, and ancient Egypt. But you're seeing, of course, a parasol. And a parasol is the sunny option for keeping the weather off you. But actually, we have to look at the parasol briefly because it has some of the connotations of status that came to be handed down to the umbrella. So if you look at ancient sculptures, you'll see that the king or the emperor or the pharaoh would often have a slave or a favoured courtier who would protect them from the sun as they walked or rode or in their chariot. They would have somebody bearing a, a parasol to protect them from the sun. And then you sort of morph into the arrival of the umbrella. So we, we know of the parasol at least 4,000 years ago in various cultures, all the way through to the Ashanti. And what we have in terms of an umbrella, we don't really see in in terms of something that is literally there to keep the rain off you. We don't find that in European culture till the late 15th century. It doesn't really have much of a a mark on, on the world in the 16th. And it's really only in the late 17th century. And I was really intrigued by that. So what, what I didn't know was why we didn't bother with this. And part of the reason for this was that we had other ways of keeping the rain off us. And one of those from the second half of the 17th century onwards was beaver skin. Beaver skin was incredibly important. Yes, the beaver skin had been used before that. You know, you'll find in Chaucer, one of his characters wearing a, a beaver skin hat. 
But beaver skin was very, very good at keeping wet weather off you. And it wasn't really until the 18th century that you find it becoming a, a fashionable object. For a long time, the umbrella in Europe was seen as a very effeminate thing. If men used them, it was seen as a, a bit ridiculous. And with the advent of waxed umbrellas, as we would recognise them, you get a change in fashion for headgear. So it's with the success of the umbrella in the 17th, 18th century, really, that you start to get silk hats. Instead, you couldn't have a silk hat in oh, wet weather. Okay. Well, if you, so if you were a, a dressy peacock in Renaissance England, for example... Jacobean or Tudor England, Mm. you wouldn't want to keep the rain off your finery or would you wear a cloak? How would that work? Well, I think it was considered quite manly to brave the rain. And it was fine for ladies to, especially ladies of status, to have somebody carry an umbrella for them or sometimes for themselves. In fact, there's quite an interesting family relationship between the crossover between beaver skin and umbrellas because there is a, a Palatine princess called Liselot in the 1720s, 1750s, who was vaguely connected to the British royal family through the Hanoverians. But essentially, she was the Duke of Orléans in France's daughter. And she decided that the umbrella was the height of fashion and people fell into line with that. Well, it was her, it was Liselot's uncle, Rupert of the Rhine, who opened up Canada on the basis of the Hudson Bay Company, which still exists today, which was to bring back beaver skins from Canada. Because the appetite for beaver skins for this fashion was so great. Yes, and in fact, the beaver skin appetite really helped structure North American, well, who, who, who had dominance there, because the French finance minister for Louis XIV, Colbert, was offered almost the monopoly of beaver skin trade in Canada, what we call Canada, and he thought it would come to nothing. But Prince Rupert formed the Hudson Bay Company and got the grant of a million acres of Canada in which to exploit beaver skins. And that was the basis for British power in Canada. So were they really expensive then? Were they only really limited to... They were. That's a very good question. So yes, they were. They did the job perfectly the initial investment that the Hudson Bay Company put into sending a a fleet of two ships uh, <laughs> across to North America was something like £4,500. And the first load back, which was in one ship, because the other one didn't make it, was £1,200. So people were making a lot of money out of this. Mm-hmm. But because it was an expensive commodity, you would blend the beaver skin with, say, rabbit skin to make it go further. So really, the other thing with the beaver skin, you could put it into different shapes quite easily. And so you could make it quite puffy in wet weather. So it would would cover a lot of your face. So it wasn't really until the 1750 that we have a man called Jonas Hanwy, who was a Persian traveller in Europe. And he thought it was the most marvellous thing to have a proper umbrella, a sensible device to beat away the rain. And he wrote about it, championed it, and it then became quite a thing. And you'll see it through literature from that point, actually. So we see so many examples of the umbrella as a device in a tale. I mean, of course, more recently, Mary Poppins with her magical umbrella. Actually, in the original book, Mary Poppins wasn't a saccharine sweet delight, such as the Julie Andrews version, but a very vain woman who is very proud of the design, the peacock or parrot shape. of parrot the, shape, the, the parrot shape, that's yeah. right, of the handle. 
And then, of course, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Hagrid appears first with a magical umbrella to give the odious Dudley a pig's tail. The thing is with the umbrella, it's, I, I associate it with sort of great aunts. It seems to be a sort of relic of Victorian or Edwardian England, although, of course... There are probably more umbrellas sold and used now. There's just something a bit old-fashioned about You're it. You're absolutely right. I mean, it really took off in popularity around the time of Charles Dickens. A lot of his works reference umbrellas, particularly, well, do you know what a gamp is, for instance? Well, I know gamp. it's an umbrella. Yes, and that's because of? A character in Dickens? Yes, it's Mrs Gamp in Martin Chuzzlewit. And it became known as a gamp quite regularly and as a common parlance. And it's, it became also something, you know, when Dick Van Dyke's in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and he talks about umbrellas in, his, in the old bamboo, the old bamboo, that song there. So it became all these different ways of talking about an umbrella became quite popular during our cultural evolution. And was it seen as genteel? Did it have a sort of, did it confer a sort of prestige of some kind on the owner? Was it a luxury item? It actually fell in two directions. So predominantly, yes, it was seen as a very genteel declaration of class and status. But at the same time, you sometimes have in literature as a reference to the, the, the sort of lowlifes having them as well. So essentially, you're right. In fact, E.M. Forster in Howard's End, there's a whole sort of subtext of the possession of an umbrella, which is seen as a absolute indicator of class between the two rival families. Mm. One who has so many umbrellas, there's a a less privileged person goes to retrieve an umbrella he's left at their house and he's furious with envy at the many they have against the one that he's come to retrieve. In so a wet country, yeah. like Norway, for example, how did people keep the rain off? Did they bother about The Vikings, I can't imagine, would have vapours about a storm. Well, they? no, but they have. So they're... It's different fabrics and, and whether, you know, you use wool. I can't remember now which one is the best for waterproofing because if you're on a ship and you're travelling, so that's Vikings, obviously later times, maritime cultures like that, you're going to get really, really wet a lot and your things are going to stay wet. Mm. So you need fabrics that are going to cope with that and stay so comfortable still for a long time. And in snow and, yeah, definitely lots of furs and skins. And we know that different furs, obviously not, there's only beaver skins, but sort of different person skins were utilised for that purpose. You know, some that keep you warm, some that keep you dry. So there's a lot of technology involved in that. But it wasn't about preserving an aesthetic. It was about the need of physical It's much reality. more a sort of, yeah, yeah. So I guess this is the difference, isn't it, with the umbrella, which then lets you actually have, it doesn't affect your clothing, I suppose. So you mm. can still wear whatever is, is looking good. Well, that's good it. And, it produced... I think it's the reverse almost what Richard's saying. By having an umbrella, you could go softer with the clothes because yeah. they weren't going to get soaked yeah. or cause a problem. And presumably hair and makeup, you know, so anything like that. So you can have elaborate hairstyles, which... I think has... that's why the ladies, it was always considered a, a feminine right to have an umbrella, yeah. whereas for men it was considered not very masculine. But it, it became the tightly filled umbrella held confidently in the hand of a young chap around St. James's or something. It's almost a cliche, isn't it? Yes, that, that, that's an early 18th century invention. So before that, not. But by then, it was just considered a very sensible thing to have for yeah. obvious reasons. Yeah. You know, we live in a climate like this. It particularly took off in France, Italy and England out mm. of the European countries and became a, a great fashion statement, particularly in Paris. And it came over here, particularly in Regency times, that was considered a thing. There are basically four 
main designs. There's the foldable one, the solid stick, which is the the very smart one with a bendy wooden bit. Those stems, you know, I, I always wondered, how do you find something that, that sort of bamboo-y looking handle on a proper umbrella? I'm talking about a very expensive umbrella. It can take six months to create those and it's done through steaming for six months. So that's why part of the reason they're so expensive. You also have a golf umbrella, which, of course, is purely practical for people who play that sport. And that can be a 70-inch span. And then the classical one is the one that you see most commonly. But can I say, it is completely wrong for people to use golf umbrellas for an everyday umbrella because they just take up half the pavement. And you see it all the time, those people using golf umbrellas. And I want to say to them, excuse me. Yeah. It's yes. all that. about you. So when, when did it become, I mean, now nobody really, or maybe this is just my world, I don't know, would really have a really nice umbrella or sort of, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have a sort of properly Well, I can tell you why. Stylish. Well, when did that change? Well, I can tell you that because essentially what is the most common thing you're going to do? This is the interesting fact that I came in and mm. my research you are going to lose your umbrella. So why (laughs) spend so much money? Yes. And this is the fact I found so astonishing. On average, there are 80,000 lost umbrellas on London Underground each year. Can I tell you something? You have mine. What kind of person has the richest arsenal of umbrellas? A doorman. Vickers. Oh. Because people always leave umbrellas in church. Always. We can leave them there for people to come. But if ever you're a vicar and you're in church, it's raining, you will never, ever go without an umbrella. Well, with the religious theme, I mean, the Pope, it's part of the coat of arms in the period between the death of a Pope and the the finding of a new one, that the umbrella is part of it. Also, another religious thing I heard, and I don't know if this is true and if you know about it, Richard, was... On the island of Malta, if a woman was having a problem reproducing, the vicar had the right to go and offer himself and hang his umbrella on the door handle. So if the husband came home, he realised that God's work was going on indoors. I explained an awful lot about Maltese clerical culture, but no, I didn't know. <laughs> but I tell you that there is a religion, an umbrella called an umbrellino, that's used in, in liturgy, and it's if the Blessed Sacrament, the consecrated bread, is taken on walkabout, as say Corpus Christi, it's often covered with the, the umbrellino, which is a little gold umbrella on the end of a long stick. I suppose it's because it's saying, again, this is high status. This is yes. something mm. that we must cherish and protect and care for. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That. So was that your interesting fact? Have you already well, taken it? Well, I hope there it? were more than the one, that but I, I, I'm happy Sorry. to hang my I mean, hat yes, on that one. Hang your umbrella on it. <laughs> Very good. I like that. I like the number of, of lost umbrellas. And well, I kind of fancy going out and buying a nice one now. Like yeah, I but also, I just want to actually end on stressing how modern it is. You know, it was only in 1928 that the foldable pocket umbrella came about. And it was in 1969 that the first working folding umbrella was patented. So, you know, we think these have been around forever, but think of paintings. I mean, there's, okay, we can all think of an impressionist one, but there are very few old paintings with an umbrella in because yeah. a, a parasol was it and an umbrella was a bit uncouth, I think. Well, also how interesting that it was considered, we presume, more important to shade high-status people from the rays of the sun than from the products of clouds. Well, I, I keep the sun off than the rain off. I think it was uh, the status being that well, up until recently, if somebody had a suntan, it was assumed that they were having to work in the field and to have white skin was considered, um, in Northern Europe, was considered a high status thing because you didn't need to do that. So I imagine it's a similar a similar snobbery involved in that. There we go. Very Is good. It you, Nick? I think we're coming on to me now. Yes. So, because well, I think you're doing crime fiction, I which I am. naturally feel a little proprietorial over. But yeah, over to you, exactly. Kat. So rather than me being, you know, spending the next fifteen minutes interviewing you about your 
<laughs> if you want to do that, but, can yeah, we, here. We, we, we could do, we could do. I thought it might be interesting to see where it's coming from, really, because I absolutely love crime fiction. That's all. I, I mean, I read I lots like of... good crime fiction. Yeah. What do you think about that, Richard? <laughs> I like. I feel like that's a loaded question there, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm uh, so I, I obviously read lots of non-fiction and fact-based stuff for work, but when I relax, it's some really gruesome, thrillery crime fiction. Well, of course, stuff. the Scandinavians are so good well, at this. Exactly. I mean, it's sort of I've grown up with this. You're just, Nespo and all. Yeah, Jonespo. It's all oh, there's a lot of that, and I grew up with that. Started really reading Agatha Christie, so I was going to just go for Agatha Christie, inspired by your going into a, an author before um, in yes. a previous episode. But then I thought I'd take it a little bit wider than that, and just this idea of crime fiction. Why is that such a big thing? I mean, there's so many horrible things happening in the world. Why do we want to spend our spare time <laughs> reading about more horrible things? And where does that come from? With that sort of idea and the obsession with, with the crime, which I thought was really interesting. So I wanted to find out a little bit more about the origin of it. And part of it is defining sort of what is crime fiction, I suppose, you know, how, what is it? And, and uh, we talk about detective stories. And one definition is looking at something where you have obviously a, a crime, a sort of really good crime. You've got a suspect, somebody who's accused often, often is sort of wrongly accused suspect as well. You've got that. You've got somebody who's a detective of some kind investigating it, usually using observation. And then you sort of gradually reveal the, the sort of culprit and that's what makes it I suppose a crime fiction story so if you go back to the earliest ones and then what you know what we have as records and I think some people even include lots of biblical stories as kind of crime stories where something something wrong has happened and you try and work it out but that's the key thing I think yeah it's a sort of you know something but I guess in some of those it's not so much about just solving the crime but it's more a sort of moral which again comes in later on as well you know why why are we telling the story it's not for entertainment I, but suppose. I, think, that, I think that's why people like crime fiction is because an orderly world is suddenly disorderly yeah. and then it's made right again yeah. and it's reassuring. Exactly. It's reassuring. It's that, yeah. isn't it? Because it's always solved at the end. You never really get stories that have absolutely no resolution. Yeah. Um, maybe they're a bit ambiguous, but they always come back to usually the baddies <laughs> get you know, punished or whatever. So but that's so interesting because if we take the crime fiction thing into television, yeah. I remember there was a huge disappointment and almost anger among CSI operatives that every single CSI episode ends in a conviction because yeah. in real life yeah. it, it doesn't happen, happen at all. It's a contained explosion at, at crime fiction, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You really. get the, the devastation, but then everything's put back together. Yeah. It's very, it's very simple in the stories and on TV and then that obviously mm. is not real. So it's, that's affected really people's expectations of how real crime should be solved because we all see it happening. You know, they're always solving it and the, the forensics are always solving it, but not really true. But if we go back to kind of the, the origins of it, there's some, some really interesting early versions that Obviously, everyone's always debating what's the earliest and there's various cultures and, and things that have had similar, really, crime stories. One of the ones I really liked was, and I think it's probably one of the earliest, is from uh, Thousand and One Nights or Arabian Nights. Oh, yes. So there's a few stories in there that can really sort of count as crime stories. One of them is called The Three Apples. Mm. And this is a, a really interesting one because it's got a lot of the, the sort of the, the recognisable aspects of a crime story. It's got a fisherman who discovers a chest washed up uh, by the river and he takes it to the caliph Harun al-Rashid and he breaks it open and inside it there's a, the body of a, a murdered woman. Mm. And so he tries to 
find out who committed this crime. So he gets him three days to try and solve this mystery, who, who killed this woman. But there's a sort of slight problem with it, not making a proper detective story. Like he, he actually doesn't care, he doesn't want to, so he just sits at home and oh doesn't actually solve it. But then eventually we find out that it's the is a woman's husband who's murdered her because he's accusing her of adultery, which actually was not right and it was a slave and it was this whole big story that he's sort of trying to find out but essentially we, we've got there's lots of twists in the tale as well where we work out you know what's happening there's various little red herrings and all of that so that's a really nice one and as a complete rabbit hole and I know this has got nothing mm. to do with it but I love this because actually that Khalif al-Rashid he was the real one, late 8th, 9th century who sent an elephant to Charlemagne Oh really? Yeah Oh my nothing to do with it but anyway there we go that's what happens so after that we've got various other sort of medieval tales Chinese literature has got what we could recognise as crime fiction as well but what we sort of actually recognise more in our sort of modern world in the West especially uh, doesn't come into much later we've got different things in the 16th and 17th century what we come to know as rogue literature which is stories again it's sort of focusing on thieves and crimes and sort of bad things they're not detective stories People aren't solving them, but it becomes a bit of a, a sort of obsession with bad things happening and people doing bad things. And I guess just sort of a bit more an awareness of those things going on as well. Oh, yeah. And, and sort of about witches as well. And into the 1600s, we've got a lot of literature about witches and, and as a witch hunts and things like that. But with a whodunit aspect to it? or Not so much. At this stage, isn't really so much about solving it. It's just much more about the Deadling crime, yeah. I guess, about it's, the fact that people do horrible things. So trying to reorder a disordered world, yeah. isn't it? I think so. And just making is, people yeah. aware as well. And I think we were talking about a, a time where... So as we can see, when, when the actual real crime fiction comes in, it's more to do with things like the Industrial Revolution. People start living in towns and cities and, and mm. you have much more crime, I suppose, going on. The police forces don't really get established until later on either. The thing about, there was a sort of spate of murders in Eastbourne near where I live in the, about 100 years ago. And why were there murders happening in Eastbourne? Well, one of the answers was there was lots of people were coming to the seaside yeah. away from towns and cities and young men and young women were getting together in ways mm. that were sometimes catastrophically awful for everyone concerned. So you did, it was kind of, Motive and opportunity, yeah. I guess. Yes. Exactly. And Away is, from home. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, it all kicks off on a mm. balmy night. Yeah. Yes. There's a lot of that sort of impact of different changes socially that lead to all of this as well. Yeah, and you see so, it in, in Sherlock Holmes, don't you, all the time. Yeah. The, 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 lots of the London's underbelly, I'm using quotation marks here, was the London of newly arrived immigrant communities, wasn't it? That they yeah. didn't really understand and felt other and threatening and... Weird. Exactly. So yeah. some of it's a sort of warning about these places as well and what could happen. So it's really, it's, it's kind of really in the 19th century that we start to see the first, I guess, detective stories and things like that. And in fact, the, the word detective doesn't exist until the 1840s. So we don't have detectives until then. So that's really, and also some of the, the first stories coming in. So a so, detective and an umbrella could have been both arrived more or less at the same time. Yeah, same. Or, is that well, a coincidence? You remember, a, a perfect murder <laughs> weapon too. Yeah. Who was murdered by, in the George 1970s? Markov. Yes, by a rice in pellet fired from a, a KGB umbrella. Well, there we go. 
Yeah, Very but that good. wasn't fiction. That wasn't fiction, <laughs> it was true. So yeah, so we have these coming in the 1800s. And we talked about Scandinavian detective and Scandinavian, Scandinoir and, and things as well. Is that so, a long tradition? Because so, it's so, that's what we think of. Yeah. You know, particularly because it's so prevalent on TV is the, the combination of Scandinavia and Noir. So some of that is very, it is much more recent. It's in the last sort of 20, 30 years. But some of the earliest ever crime novels are, there's a Danish and a Norwegian one. There's one of the Danish crime history from 1829 called The Rector of Vailby by Stan Stansen Fletcher. Never heard of it. No, I've never either, to be completely honest. And there's a Norwegian one, The Rector of a Certain oh, Place. I see, right. So, yeah, he's, it's actually based on a true murder case from 1626. Mm-hmm. And there's a Norwegian one called The Murder of Engine Maker Rolfsson by Maritz Hansen, again published in the 1830s. So these these really are some of those earlier stories coming on. But then it, it sort of kicks up off quite quickly. We've got Edgar Allan Poe with the murders in the Rue Morgue. Yeah. I've never read it, have you? Well, I think of that as I think of that as the earliest. Yeah, and crime that's that is I don't know about these Scandinavian ones. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. No, they're quite unusual, but they're they're slightly slightly before him, so it's, it's clearly part of the same thing. There's so that sort of kicks it off properly. There's a lot going on in France as well. So so this is really, it's the 1840s very much that that whole genre properly kicks off. And then you've got Dickens, Bleak House in 1853, mm-hmm. which is very important because that detective, Inspector Bucket, who's in that story, is a, called the first fictional detective. But yeah, so after that, we've got the first female detective coming in really early before actually we have female police officers in a book called Ruth the Betrayer. So I quite like that. But yeah, so... I think from the 19th century, we have a starting point and then 20th century into the early 20s and 30s. And we have Agatha Christie coming in, obviously completely changing that. But the crime, the scandal eyes, the sort of 1990s especially. Mm. And it's interesting why that's become so popular. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's a lot of it has been... Because of this sort of idea that Scandinavian countries are so, you know, beautiful and wonderful and perfect in, in so and many menacing ways. menacing as well. But it actually has this sort yeah. of undertone and this idea that actually... Where does the bad stuff go? Yeah. That's right. It's like every society in has to have bad stuff. Of social But it's like Fargo and, too. Fargo, yeah. which is, yeah. okay, it's North Dakota, but it's, it's very similar to Scandinavian thing. That's one of the great crime stories. But I was going to say to... Both of you. Now, when I think of Agatha Christie, I think of the devices she used and there can have been no better murder weapon than the icicle. Oh, yes. so good. Yeah. So clever. Yeah. I mean, Brilliant. it's up there with Royal Dolls. Is the leg, the of, leg lamb. of lamb, yeah. and they eat that. You know, it's when the evidence goes that I think it's brilliant. Yeah. I love a really, really good, solid idea that the whole the plot hinges on. I always want that. Do you work backwards, yeah. Richard? Do you work backwards from the from crime? the MacGuffin, as they call it. Well, I have an idea about what I mean. The, the new book that's coming, there's the solving of the mystery is quite novel, I think, and that was the thing that came first. Was I will solve the mystery that way, mm. then I had to work out what the mystery was. Yeah. It's also about how much you reveal, isn't it? And that's I think one of the things that Agatha Christie does. So so well is you're led to think that you could really solve it at any moment because she doesn't give you enough information but then she sort of gives you little clues and so it's, it's all about yes. the really good crime novel to me is one where you, you you sort of you're kept thinking that you might be able to solve it it's just there it's really, when you're doing it it's really interesting because you want to put in enough for people so when you do explain it it thinks oh yes of course da, 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 da. yeah but it's very hard to judge what people will pick up and what they won't pick yeah up. absolutely unless you're writing Columbo where you give it all at the beginning <laughs> yeah. and he comes meandering around to the Come perfect back, yeah, spot. Yeah. Or very, like, if you think of that as a device, it's very yeah. clever. 
I have a friend and she loves crime fiction, but she reads the end first because she finds the whole sort of working out is kind of boring. She's interested in the interaction, the social history or that kind of thing. Yeah, no, you need need the tension. It's like other ones where like in Midsummer Murders where... You just have to look at the really weird thing that they mentioned at the first, which seems to have nothing to do with the storyline. Just yeah, like, yes. oh, well, on Tuesday I go to play bridge or whatever it is. Yes. And then you sort of go, well, that's going to be that. was a bit like thing. that. Yeah. I think Agatha Christie, like most people who were just phenomenally good, she made it look so easy. Yeah. But I think there's an extraordinary economy in her writing. She never says more than she needs to say, and the plots are always very lean and very well engineered. Absolutely. And also she could churn it out. Oh, yeah. That's well, yeah. the thing. And that leads me to my one of my favourite facts as well, actually, because there's lots of people who are really, really prolific. But in terms of how much she's told, so this was my, my absolute favourite fact, was the fact that I don't quite have a, a definite number for how many books she's sold, but do you want to have a guess? Agatha Christie? Yeah. 100 million? I'd say a billion. Yeah, so estimated somewhere between two and four billion books. Oh, goodness. Can you imagine? I've no. read them all. <laughs> yeah. I've re- and I reread them now and I realize I've forgotten them, but yes. I read them again. And I think it's because it's that reassurance. When I was yeah. on tour in the 1980s, I used to read Agatha Christie because there was something about vicarages and little old ladies mm. and rose covered cottages that yes. just was very reassuring. Yeah. But I also think you know, there's Richard and I are of a generation. We grew up on so many of these things. You know, Lord Peter Whimsey yeah. was very big and raffles and all of these rather glamorous people involved in solving or doing crime. And the Scandi thing is so different, isn't it? Because it's yeah. all a bit bleak, really. Well, that was one of the, I think, the sort of successes of that whole genre was, was very much that it was such a contrast to that mm. traditional mystery crime, very sort of cosy. Yes. And it was, it was, it was bleak no and Orient brutal. Express, and, no, it's all very, very <laughs> straight up. I've got up. a fact for you. Okay. How many clerical detectives are there in literature? Vicar detectives, how many? One. No, no. Well, obviously, but no, how many? Well, I can think of several. 200. Mm. Oh, my God. That's quite a lot. Well, because vicars make good detectives. Because you have a reason to learn be in it. other people's lives. Yes. Oh, yes. So you yes. can poke around and stuff comes to you. Yes. Yeah. So vicar detectives, it kind of works. And are they all good or are some of them quite bad? No, they're very uneven. There's yeah. some very good ones. I think there aren't very many that are written by clergy. <laughs> Modesty, but but there's a very good one in America written by a Roman Catholic priest. But I think vicars can get into places. But I mean, I think archaeologists also. Well, Agatha Christie's husband, Max Mallowan, was an archaeologist. So that's why there's so much archaeology in there. So he was a very, very good. um, So she used to go with him on excavations. So there's this huge amount of archaeology in there. And she um, was a chemist, wasn't she? Which is originally, at one point in life, she was a chemist, which is why she was so good on toxicology. Yeah, absolutely. So she had all those basics. It's um, it's a perfect background. Did you ever fancy being a detective? No. I don't think I'd have the patience, really. And I certainly haven't got the scientific side. So... I enjoy people. I, you know, I once worked out somebody had stolen something from me just by their demeanour. Oh, and they right. admitted it, yes. They were hanging around in the background while I was reporting it. And I just said, you did it. And they admitted it. And that was rather odd. They probably gave away so many signals that they were guilty. That did I, it feel like a hunch? Or did you it think? It felt certain, actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then we've got some more facts on that coming on, I think. So you mentioned about the Bible and the earliest stories. Some scholars uh, suggest that ancient and religious texts bear similarities to what would later be known as detective fiction. And Richard, for example, in the Old Testament, the story of Susanna and the elders apparently contains some detective story structure. Yeah, right. (laughs) Thanks for your support. (laughs) 
<laughs> some say, some, some, some say we can do um, <laughs> Your point, Richard, about Agatha Christie, she was not formally trained as a pharmacist. She actually came to the world of pharmaceuticals as a volunteer nurse during World War I, uh, and served in Torquay Red Cross Hospital, trained on the job, then completed an exam that made her the equivalent of an assistant pharmacist, and then uh, resumed her duties in the pharmacy during World War II. Do you know how many of her detective novels contain poisons? No. <gasps> no. Have a random 22. Guess. 39. 40. So close, it's 41. Oh. So 61% for anybody keeping score of Agatha Christie's detective novels contain poison. Clearly that's the that's the way to get rid of someone, is it? I Your think we're moving fact. on to you now. Oh, my so, favorite, no, that was the Agatha Christie, I think. Was, yes. Okay, got one more. So the most prolific crime fiction author was John Creasy. He wrote over 600 books, apparently. Blimey. Can you imagine? I'm struggling on my second. Him. Have you heard of him? <laughs> I have actually, yeah. I've heard of a John Creasy who wrote about great battles, but it can't be the same man. But 600, though, how on earth do you do that? It's impossible. I mean, there are periods anyway. of, there's a huge flourishing of crime fiction in the 1930s. And I wonder if the appetite we have for it now is similar in that the 1930s, everyone dreaded the approaching yes. feeling of menace that the world was yeah. darkening. And I wonder if that's a similar thing. Yeah. This reassuring thing that you have so much horribleness, potentially, and then it's solved and it's contained and it's you know it's it fine it's okay you can do yeah. with it yeah. yeah i think that's very true but that's let's me. go away from horrible anxiety and go to something nice and lovely which is your topic I'm i hope talking about yeah this is the first flower the dahlia yes the dahlia i never really thought about dahlias very much until i was a curate in lincolnshire and i used to drive through the fens to boston where i was curate and pass spalding and after all i noticed towards the end of summer early autumn this extraordinary show of color blazing colors in people's gardens and allotments and it was dahlias dahlias of course a very popular garden flower, cut flower. People have grown them for ages and ages and ages. Famous for their kind of glorious colour, their intense colours, everything from kind of blues to reds to yellows to lavenders. To, they come in different shapes and sizes. You get the star shape, you get the pom-pom, you get the cactus shape. But they, they only really arrived in these parts, at, well, in Europe at the end of the 18th century and became popularised in this country, well, Germany before that, beyond in the sort of early 1800s. They're Mexican. They come from Mexico. Like so many of the lovely flowers and plants that we see in catalogues and at garden centres, they actually come from actually the high plains in Mexico. People thought when they first arrived that because they came from Mexico, they would be plants that like warm and balmy circumstances. And so Kew started trying to grow them in hothouses. They didn't work because actually they're hardier than that. They come from a place which is actually cooler and windier. So they're quite hardy in a funny kind of way. The first we know of them is from the Spanish conquest of Mesoamerica in the 1500s. And we know that there's stuff in the library at El Escorial, at the Royal Library in Madrid, that uh, describes them. The first one to come back was in the sort of 1790s and ended up as a sort of object of fascination in the royal botanic centres, you know, that era of expansion, understanding the world and classification and collecting stuff. So the first ones that came back, came back to the, in the Spanish court and then they went to France and so on. And beautiful, gorgeous things. People got very excited about them. They became very popular. Really popularised in Germany. And do you know who was responsible really for the German fascination with dahlias? I dread to think. Is it yes. Hitler? Goethe. Okay, phew. One of the things Goethe did was look after the garden of Duke Karl August at Weimar. And Goethe, who was famous for his love of roses, also loved 
dahlias, actually. So dahlias kind of got a foothold there. And then gradually they kind of spread across Europe as a fashionable flower. In Britain, it was largely thanks to the Marchioness of Butte. I think it might have been the third Marchioness, I'm not sure. But she was sort of fascinated in, in planting and stuff, and she, she got them going. The Victorians loved them because it was so exciting, if you think, to have arrivals in your garden that were bright and hot yes. and intense. They came in all different sizes. And so ranked with the chrysanthemum, I suppose, as one of those kind of flowers that you would... That's so interesting because I think of those two as very similar, you know, in, in that they're quite garish really, aren't they? Yeah. Was it one of your favourite flowers, do you think, Richard? Well, when I grew up, I can just remember in the sort of neat gardens of Kettering that you would see dahlias in the back and on the allotments you'd see dahlias, but then they fell very much out of fashion mm. because they were, I think, seen as a bit gaudy. And when you had the sort of revolutions of in gardening of Gertrude Jekyll and people like that and Great Dixter and that kind of thing, where everything became sort of rather country and the white garden became very fashionable, the idea of these kind of gaudy, intense colours very much sort of fell out of favour Hmm. until actually it was Great Dixter and in the 1980s when all of a sudden people started realising like Fergus Garrett I suppose that you could put intense colour into a garden and it would do wonderful things but the dahlias that became fashionable in the 80s were rather I'm thinking of the Bishop of Llandaff which is perhaps the most famous variety of that kind which is kind of a seemly red with bronze coloured foliage and then they became, gradually they've begun to pulse again and become a bit hotter and the colours become more exciting and the varieties become more exciting. But they are bright, they're little explosions of colour. Hmm. But I really like them. I don't know, what about you? They're not my favourite, to be honest. It's not, I like the sort of rather more textured flowers. A peony, to me, cannot mm. be surpassed, you know? Because of the, the kind of unfolding ball thing. Yes. They and there's so much them. to look at. In a, do you know what I mean? A, yeah. A daily is rather obvious, and it's, it's got its place. I like something a little bit softer, really, and I love sweet peas and all sorts of very English things, like wild roses. I'm not an expert at all. I'm probably a bit of a philistine, but also I really adore the wilder-looking tulips as well. Mm, what about tulips. you, Kat? Absolutely. I was going to say tulips probably and peonies are among them, but I like, I I like sell, succulents I as well. I want to sell the There's a nice story about the name as well, is that um, they're thought to have been named after Anders Dahl, who was a okay. Swedish botanist. Fascinating person. He, at the age of nine, he was this extraordinarily gifted child and he collected lots of plants. And then there was an associate of Linnaeus, the great mm. classifier oh, yes. of the natural world, plant world who came across him when he was nine and the, the story goes that it was Linnaeus who dubbed the dahlia the dahlia to named after Antistol but it, actually the dates don't work mm. but we think it was the guy the guy who ran he was a Frenchman actually who escaped the French Revolution to go to Spain where he looked after the uh, royal botanic centers in in Spain that he gave it to Dahl so that's a nice story but they weren't it didn't settle at first they were known as Georginas I think in Russia they're still known as Georginas because somebody else named them after a guy who called Georgie, I think. I can't remember, but he was a, another sort of botanist of repute. But you, of course, would know them as Dahlia. Well, yes, that's just my <laughs> my <laughs> pronunciation of it. But do we do we get them in art at all? Do oh, we get gosh, lots of them in yeah. art? I mean, uh, Are they sort of specifically well, Monet, pointing? Uh, yeah, you know who Monet, who just adored um, flowers, 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 flowers. And you think yeah. of you, you know you think of lilies or whatever. But Monet was a great um, a great lover of the dahlia, mm. <laughs> and they crop up in. Well, they became such a sort of a stalwart flower of the Victorian period, particularly in... I also didn't know that their exotic roots, you know, in, in, in middle America or whatever, but 
the fact that they're so easily transported, something so exotic looking yeah. can survive in an English garden is quite a surprise. Well, but again, because actually they come from the high plains. So they, mm. they come from a, well, it's sort of so similar climate to ours, but it doesn't require the kind of hot sultriness of a hothouse. That's what I, but what I sort of mean is that whereas a rose or a peony looks very at home in an English garden, a dahlia does slightly pop at you, doesn't it? I think that that's the point, actually. It's one of the reasons mm. why people loved it so much. And, and as you know, the kind of fashion for new flowers to put in your garden when international travel and exploration made it. There was a guy who was sent, he was fascinating, an adventurer who was sent by Spain to go to Mexico to bring, actually he was sent to bring back cochineal because they wanted the dye of cochineal, but it was so jealously preserved the trade there that he had to lie and pretend that he was actually looking for a remedy for gout <laughs> because otherwise he would have been lynched. But he found, I think in Oaxaca, he found a garden of dahlias and he was the first person who actually brought back, mm-hmm. or so the story goes. It's quite a mysterious story because they're kind of valuable objects and because mm. they're symbolic objects. There's quite a lot of mystery about them. Like the role of the Marchioness of Butte, for instance, is an interesting one. Mm. Her husband, or some say her father-in-law, had been the British ambassador to Madrid, which is where he first came across them. And one of the buttes was so great a connoisseur of flowers that he met his end that way. He was climbing a cliff in Hampshire in the 1790s, I think it was, after this elusive flower, which he reached out to pluck and fell. Oh, my goodness. Death by Dahlia. Just another interesting (laughs) thing to tell you, Agatha Christie... (gasps) Agatha Christie was a great grower of dahlias. And in fact, in one of the marple, I think one of the short stories, I think The Four Suspects, the mystery is solved by her her knowing what the different cultivars of dahlia. Isn't that brilliant, though, to bring that into a story? I love love that. Fantastic. Would you like to know my favourite dahlia fact? Yes. Yes. Bring it on. Before 1923, when insulin appeared on the scene, if you had diabetes or consumption, some would say, it would be regulated by a product called Atlantic Starch. And Atlantic Starch, a load of all nonsense, was actually made from the tubers of dahlias. So I'm mm. not sure how effective it was as a remedy, but that was your best shot before the arrival of insulin. Brilliant. Atlantic Starch. Love Thank that. You. I didn't know that. I think we have a fact coming in as well from our disembodied voice. The German name that you were straining for, Richard, was uh, Johann Gottlieb Georgi, who was a professor at the Imperial Academy of Sciences in St. Petersburg, who the dahlia was named after. Thank you. And the unfortunate man who fell off the cliff was John Stuart, the third Earl of Butte, uh, who actually gained notoriety as a short-term British Prime Minister, friend of King George III. He fell off a cliff in Hampshire trying to reach for a flower and unfortunately died soon afterwards. Sounds so very Agatha Christie, actually, does. doesn't it? it sounds <laughs> yeah. rather the suspicious. Butte's made up from Earls to Marquises, then. At have some been. point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love how this episode we've had a bit of a crossover between all the we've got the murder weapon umbrella, we've yes. got <laughs> Agatha Christie and crime and we've got them yes. all connecting all together. together. I, I think it's amazing. I, I want to now oh. call them dahlias. But I think we should. Should we just uh, well, start no, but that? obviously we'd be hated for it and rightly yeah. so. But I do think <laughs> dahlia is a very yeah. sort of innovative way of yeah. we should be we should remember Anders Dahl, the nine year old Wunderkind from Sweden. Yes, exactly. Yes. We yes. do we do also say no, we don't say peonies, we also say peony. I think I'll say Chinese peonies or Persian. I don't know. I have no idea where they come from. I think of them as an English garden now. They're so beautiful, don't you think? Yeah. I like them when they just begin When to it's run. just starting, yeah. yes. Yeah. Mm. Yes, because it's got so much promise then, hasn't it? But they're very subject to fashion flowers. And what our parents and grandparents would have expected to have in their wedding bouquet or whatever, different from what we would expect, I think. And you can have a whole species 
killed by popular culture. I mean, think of the gladioli and Dame Edna. You know, she ridiculed the Australian penchant for those flowers and that I sort had, of made them. I've had a couple of vases of glads in my sitting room in the past couple of years. I don't care what people say. <laughs> <laughs> So I think we've uh, we've been quite extensive on all our discussions and gone back and forth quite well today. So I'm not sure it's going to be very clear to our disembodied voice now. I mean, this is the final well, yeah. episode of this this series. Let me just take a wild guess. <laughs> well, <laughs> it'll be a two horse race because it I always mean, is. He it is he he has specified that this is completely undemocratic. So. I think it's up to you, really, to decide now, disembodied voice. The winner this week is actually Richard. <gasps> but oh, ultimately you are the loser because it means that you still haven't won the series. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that bittersweet offering. There's a garland of dahlias to go out on. Yeah, I think I thoroughly think. deserved, Richard. That was fascinating. But it does mean that Charles is our overall Series 1 champion. Maestro. Well, oh, congratulations. all I'm going to say. So you <laughs> get... competitive you, Charles. <laughs> you win you the golden magnifying sound. glass, <laughs> yes. apparently, as the champion of Series 1 of the Rabbit Hole Detectives. Congratulations. We're well, thank you. I yeah, totally deserve it. We're not feeling bitter anything. I should say I don't deserve it. At all. Well, yes, let's discuss that then. <laughs> Enjoy this. I like... It's so very, it, very yeah. lovely. Yeah. I, it's yeah. so nice to have a chat with friends and, and to think that somebody else might possibly be interested in overhearing it. Yeah, well, let's, let's hope so. But we've got a little bit of time, haven't we, to, to work on our tactics for next tactics. seasons and how we're going to win. I don't Why know do what's your... tactics in an uncompetitive thing like <laughs> well, the rabbit hole detectives? <laughs> fine. Dr. Jarman, I presume. Fine, no, I'm just, I'm just, I was just saying... But that's it, bringing us to the end of series one. So thank you to everyone out there for listening and putting up with all our, our nonsense for <laughs> eight episodes. But please do subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review to help other people find us. And that way you can also let us know some of the rabbit holes you'd like us to go down in series two and beyond. So we are going to be back very soon with the second series of the podcast Perhaps also news of some live shows and more origin stories of the weird and wonderful everything from The Sopranos to Concrete, The Bikini to Table Tennis. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, no one does play fair if they think they can get away with it. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.